If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. Brian McClanahan Show, episode 690. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History, when you do enroll. And purchase one or 20 of the classes there. That keeps this podcast free of charge. Also, if you're watching on YouTube, click on the Super Thanks button under the video. If you are at brianmcclanahan.com, click on the Support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way there. Or join at anchor.fm. That's where the podcast is hosted. Lots of great ways to support the show financially. Click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Send me those show requests. Let me know what you want to hear so I can keep the podcast fresh. Now, I'm going to do something today that I normally don't do, and that is a carryover from the day before on the same theme. And I said I was going to do it yesterday because the topic yesterday was such an important and huge topic particularly for people that are interested in the historical profession. And there's a lot of people out there like that who follow the podcast, maybe people who are in graduate school or who are out just out of graduate school, or even some people have been out of graduate school for a long time in the historical profession. There are people interested in this idea of historical objectivity. It's something I talk about a lot on this show. And in fact, that's what Americans are realizing about so many things in life that we've taken for granted that are objective. One of those, of course, is the mainstream news. And if you take my uh, 25 people who changed America at McClanahan Academy, I talk about where that really began, and that was Walter Cronkite. Americans before that point realized news was biased. They knew it. Right? If you go back to the 19th century, to the 18th century, even early 20th century, you find that newspapers which was the primary medium for obtaining news information, were all biased. They were owned by party operatives. They were owned by political hacks. And the editorial pages, of course, are where you found out what the bias was. But even the news selections they had, you would find the newspapers were biased. It's very hard to get any kind of objective news out of newspapers uh, at any time, right? Even to this day, we know the New York Times is biased. We know the Washington Post is biased. We know that Washington Times is biased. We know the New York Post is biased, right? So you just flip things on their on their uh, head, and we know that those those sources are biased in in a different way. So if you want to get quote unquote objective news, what you need to do is read multiple newspapers and find out what this side is saying and what that side is saying, and then you try to filter all this out and figure out what's the truth. This is a hard thing to do. We know in television news. We've got your quote-unquote conservative uh, cable channels and your quote-unquote liberal cable channels. We know a lot of these are just all garbage. They're all just establishment channels at the end of the day. They just promote whatever the establishment wants you to know. But this is, this is what passes for news. And you know what? 
you know who reads a lot of news and you know who's influenced by all these things? <clears throat> well, of course, historians. If you go back and take a 19th century figure, for example, let's say you want to write about a political figure from the 19th century and you go back and say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try to figure out who this person was. Well, you can read their letters, and of course, letters are going to be extremely biased because they're going to have their own position on things. You're going to get their side of the story through the letters. You can read their speeches if they're available. You can read all of their public documents, all of their private documents. And then, of course, you're going to try to figure out what other people were saying about this person. And you're going to go to news sources for that. You're going to go to newspapers. And those newspapers are going to be biased. And, of course, you're going to be influenced by those things. You know who recognized this? Well, Thucydides. <laughs> Back when he was writing his history of the Peloponnesian Wars, Thucydides recognizes dependence on sources, and that his dependence on sources would then create bias. So history has always been subjected to the sources, and the sources have their own biases. And then oftentimes, even the topics you pick show your own biases as a historian. So if you're interested, say, in, again, 19th century American politics, you are exposing a certain type of bias. But not just that, the subjects you pick in that particular field are going to show your biases. For example, you have all of the righteous cause mythologists today writing essays, articles on uh, people that would be radical Republicans in the 1860s. Why? Because that fits their preconceived notion of what was good in America and what was right in America and what was true in America. You see? Uh, so if you write a biography of Thad Stevens, well, then you're generally showing your biases. One thing I will give Alan Gelzo credit for when he wrote his biography of Robert E. Lee, he actually admitted at the beginning of the book, I'm writing this as a Yankee would write a biography of Robert E. Lee. I don't really like Robert E. Lee. And so you know from the beginning, here are my biases. I'm going to do my best to prevent, present Robert E. Lee as I see him. And therefore, you're going to get what a northerner would write about Robert E. Lee. He tries very hard to be objective, but you know he's not. And at least he admits it from the beginning. This is where, uh, when you look at me, people would call someone like me, well, that guy, he, he's, he's biased. The, the, uh, the dichotomy of that, right, the flip side of that would be that they aren't, if you're talking about a historian. You see, they believe in what Peter Novick called that noble dream. That's a very good book if you want to get into a, kind of in the weeds of historical objectivity. I was actually assigned that book in graduate school. It's one of the few books that I actually thought, outside, by not by Clyde Wilson, but by another professor, that was actually worthwhile to keep around and refer back to because it is a blistering critique of historical objectivity. He gives it to the leftists who claim to be objective. And you see this on Twitter, right? You see it all the time. Uh, well, I'm a historian. Let me tell you about the real history of this thing. What they're giving you is their own bias of what they think this, this event or uh, subject material is about. So historians are really never objective. There's no historical objectivity. It doesn't exist. It's a veil of objectivity. They hide behind it. Well, this is the objective history of this. This is the true history. This is the truth. All I did was go out and look at the sources and I told you what they said. That's never the case. Again, even the subject material you pick often says something about your biases. Now, not always. You can find a graduate student that's just looking for a topic and they stumble across something like, all right, well, nobody's written about this before, so I'll go do it. Generally, those are, tend to be pretty sloppy. They're pretty choppy. Um, they're just not that great. And you, you see this right now with people going out and trying to find you know, uh, 
subjects like the copperheads. Well, nobody's really explored the copperheads enough. That's why I have a great class on that at McClanahan Academy too. But no one's really explored the copperheads enough. So it's a dissertation topic. Well, I'll write about this guy because uh, something needs to be done about this. And I don't really know anything about it. It sounds like a good topic. You see this. I mean, graduate students fumbling around trying to find something to write about. A famous example of that is someone I knew in graduate school wrote a wrote a uh, dissertation on Northern Secession. And uh, not even anything that this guy would really do outside of that. right? So, I mean, that's particularly not what he's doing now. But that's what he wrote his, his uh, dissertation on. And it's it misses the mark in a lot of different ways. It's not bad, but it misses the mark. And again, he was looking for a dissertation topic, and he stumbled across this and said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. So it tends not to be very good um, when, when people do this. And then they just leave it. They just kind of drop it, and they don't really do much with it anymore because they know, well, this isn't really my field. I just got the piece of paper to say I have the credentials, and now I move on. Uh, this is uh, this is what happens a lot. Now, there's nothing wrong with moving on and going into what you want to do, but you see, this is where things fail to be explored in the way they need to be explored, and of course, objectivity plays a major role in that, or the lack of objectivity. So this is the big AHA blow-up that happened last week, where James Sweet wrote this little piece, his history, history, I covered it yesterday on the podcast, and it's a really good piece, in fact. I mean, there's some problems with it, but I found it to be interesting. So Sweet had to um, had to apologize for this because leftist historians didn't like what James Sweet was saying. And Phil Magnus wrote a really good piece on this, on the response to it at AIER. It's AIER.org, the American Institute for Economic Research. Now, Magnus has always been a thorn in the side of leftist Twitter. He's called a conservative. He's not. He's a libertarian. Uh, he wrote a really good book on Lincoln and colonization, which actually the 1619 Project picked up on. But when they found that Magnus was very critical of their discussion of slavery and capitalism, he, they, they backtracked on doing anything with Magnus. And he and Nicole Hannah-Jones have a long-standing hate relationship on Twitter, which is funny. If you want to go out and read some really funny exchanges, go out and look at Phil Magnus and what he, uh, what he says about Nicole Hannah-Jones and how she often responds to these things. Magnus is not a conservative. Magnus, I mean, his position on the, on the new history of capitalism is that you know, essentially Southerners said uh, slavery wasn't capitalist. This is this is the point. This is Eugene Genovese. And Eugene Genovese made the point that slavery and the slave system wasn't capitalist. Yes, profits were made, but it wasn't a capitalist system. It was something else. This was a big debate during Genovese's life. You had those that would call slavery uber-capitalist, right? Ultra-capitalist, because you own the means of production, which is your labor. And then you would have people like Genovese, which would say that slavery was paternalistic. It was the extension of the family. It was a different kind of institution. So now that Genovese's dead, and there's really no one to defend that position anymore. The new history of capitalism becomes ascendant. And they say, essentially, slavery was the, was the backing of every capitalist enterprise in the history of the world. Right? I mean, you wouldn't have capitalism without slavery. So essentially, what they're trying to do is say, capitalism equals slavery. Magnus has has uh, taken this apart. He's 
defended capitalism absent slavery and said you know, that slavery actually is the antithesis of capitalism. That's, that's his argument. So the, this is where the, the debate has devolved in the 1619 Project. But he's also the guy that broke the story on Kevin Cruz and plagiarism. And he's come out and said he's found a lot more of it. And this is why Kevin Cruz has completely abandoned Twitter. Because he knows that if he does anything there, he will get raked over the coals. He has abandoned it. Uh, the, the whole thing about Kevin Cruz. This is funny. I don't know if Princeton's going to do anything about Kevin Cruz or anything that's going to come out of that. I tend to think nothing will come out of that. But Magnus is an attack dog. And when Magnus is, uh, goes after you, he is thorough in how he goes after you. So this is why people on the left don't like him. Because he exposes some of the things that they do. Now, I want to read this piece because he brings out this leftist response to the James Sweet piece. And he also publishes the Apology, which I did not read yesterday on the podcast. I will read it today. And I said it was a very limp-wristed, you know, very milk-toast, very spineless kind of apology. Uh, because it's amazing how the, how the left and the mob operates in this way. And that's essentially what happened. This was mob rule. Right. The mob decided that James Sweet needed to have his penance. He needed to, he needed to go out and bow before the mob, and the mob wanted a scalp, and the mob wanted his head. I mean, this is the French Revolution in some ways. Think about it. 1789, July 14, 1789. You have the Bastille. There was nothing in the Bastille. The Bastille was a symbol, and the symbol had to go. Right? It was a symbol of the old regime. And essentially what James Sweet did was put a symbol up of the old regime. And the old regime in this case for the left is anything that calls into question their motives, beliefs, and their activities when it comes to uh, historical bias. And the scalp, if, if you know anything about the Bastille, when the Bastille was stormed, they pulled the, uh, the commander of the Bastille out and decapitated him, right? Put his head on a pike and paraded it around. You have to have the head on the pike. It ha This is the mob. The mob got riled up over a symbol and they will come and take it down. This is all that's happening throughout the United States now with things like Confederate monuments and Confederate symbols. And now they're going after George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln. They're going after everybody. The symbols have to come down because the mob is ruling. The mob, the uneducated, stupid mob. In some cases, they think they're educated. But what they're educated in is political activism. What they're educated in is a bias. What they're educated in is what they choose to think is correct history. This is the problem. Some of these people, now a lot of these people aren't, they're just dupes. So I'm going to read this. A bizarre string of events is unfolding at the American Historical Association. Last week, AHA President James A. Sweech published a column in the organization's magazine of the, on the problem of presentism in academic historical writing. According to Sweet, an unsettling number of academic historians have allowed their political views in the present to shape and distort their interpretations of the past. Well, of course, this is something that has been happening for a very long period of time. And, and the Novick book, that noble, that noble Dream, focuses on the 20th century. It's been going on all throughout then, right? Um, you need to read that book because it will be eye-opening how much of the history you get 
and you think, oh, this is a solid objective history. Is it? It's not. And it's people's political beliefs filter in to uh, that, that writing of history. This is all it does. Sweet offered a gentle criticism of the New York Times 1619 Project as evidence of this pattern. And, I mean, I would say Magnus is correct here. It was a gentle criticism. It wasn't, it wasn't a hammer. It wasn't a sledgehammer to the project. It was a gentle criticism. Many historians embrace the 1619 Project for its political messages despite substantive flaws of fact and interpretation and its content. Sweet thus asks, as journalism, the project is powerful and effective, but is it history? Within moments of his column appearing online, all hell broke loose on Twitter. And since it even the mildest suggestion that politicization is undermining the integrity of historical scholarship, the activist wing of the history profession showed up on the AHA's thread and began demanding Sweet's cancellation. Kate Denial, a professor of history at Knox College, led the charge with a widely retreated thread, calling on colleagues to bombard the AHA's executive board with emails protesting Sweet's column. We cannot let this fizzle, she declared before posting a list of about 20 email addresses. Other activist historians joined in, flooding the thread with profanity-laced attacks on Sweet's race and gender, as well as calls for his resignation over a disliked opinion column. The responses were almost universally devoid of any substance. None challenged Sweet's argument in any meaningful way. It was sufficient enough for him to have harbored the wrong thoughts, to have questioned the scholarly rigor of activism-infused historical writing, and to have criticized the 1619 Project in even the mildest terms. This is the mob. This is going after the guy that is commanding the Bastille and taking his head on a pike. They want action. This is cancel culture. This is the left. This is what they do. It's what they've always done. And if you know it, you can push back against it. Because the only thing they have is emotive power. This is all emotional. This is an emotional response. This is what their feelings were heard because somebody called them out for something that they've done. So they respond in this way. It's a, it's a, it's a lashing out over an emotional response. New York Times columnist and 1619 Project contributor uh, Jamie Bowie jumped in casually dismissing Sweet's concerns over the politicization of scholarship with contemporary social justice issues. 1619 Project creator Nicole Hannah-Jones retweeted the attacks on Sweet, even though she has previously evoked the journalistic and editorial nature of her project to shield it from scholarly criticism by historians, and he reposted her tweet, quote, This is from July 27, 2020. I've always said that the 1619 Project is not a history. It is a work of journalism that explicitly seeks to challenge the national narrative and therefore the national memory. The project has always been as much about the present as it is the past, so she's recognizing it's a biased work of journalism. That's all it is. As Sweet said, if you go back and read or listen to what I talked about yesterday, it's all Sweet said. And of course, this is the wrong thought. This is the wrong thing to say, even though leftists themselves have said the exact same thing. But you see, so much of the historical profession is deciding that this is, they're basing their careers on this stuff. This is what I believe. Because I believe it, I have to, def I have to attack what doesn't believe what I believe. Other activist historians, such as New, York, uh, New School's Claire Potter, retorted that the 1619 Project was indeed scholarly history, insisting that big chunks of it are written by professional, award-winning historians. Sweet was therefore in the wrong to call it journalism or to question its scholarly accuracy. 
Potter's claims are deeply misleading. Only two of the 1619 Project's 12 feature essays were written by historians, and neither of them are specialists in the crucial period between 1776 and 1865, when slavery was at its peak. The controversial parts of the 1619 Project were all written by opinion journalists such as Hannah Jones, or non-experts writing well outside of their own competencies such as Matthew Desmond. And this is where Matthew Desmond and uh, Phil Bagnus I mean, Phil Magnus has just ripped apart Matthew Desmond. The guy, I don't even know how he's continuing to have any kind of scholarly uh, merit after what Magnus has done to him. But this is true, right? The 1619 Project is primarily journalism. Now, the book itself, as Sweet points out, I mean, there are other historians, for example, Kevin Cruz, who contributed to the book because they jumped on this as a way for their name and money and everything else. They're just following the, the, the fame at this point. They're riding on the coattails of how famous this thing became. So they're going to jump on board with that. But the original essay, the original work, wasn't, it, was a, it was a long editorial about what they believe America should be and what it, it is, what it should have been and what it was. And I've said before, I've said it many times, if you believe in the proposition nation, then the 1619 Project is for you. It really is because it's, I mean, they are making very poignant criticisms about the way people responded to that line of the declaration. In other, in other words, they ignored it, which is true <laughs> because the United States wasn't based on this proposition, right? So, uh, they ignored it, and if you believe that, if that is your ideology, you see the 1619 Project is a work of ideology. If that is your ideology, then nothing between that really fits very well. And this is the same thing with quote-unquote conservatives who use the same basis for their ideology. It doesn't work very well. So if that's the case, two sides of the same coin... Uh, which is, fa in fact, what James Sweet actually said, right? He actually said it. This is what his critique was. He's criticizing ideology in history. Don't do it, right? Look at these people and take them for what they were at their time. The frenzy further exposed the very same problems in the profession that Sweet's essay cautioned against. David Austin Walsh, a historian at the University of Virginia, took issue with historians offering any public criticism of the 1619 Project's flaws, no matter their validity, because those criticisms are going to be weaponized by the right. You see, this is the problem. I, the, the great book about, the, um, about uh, African slavery by Thornton, he actually said, this is, I've, I've mentioned this on this podcast before, but in the preface to that book, the introduction, he says, I hope this book won't be used by the right, essentially. I hope it won't be used by the right. He's writing history, and he's saying, this is, the, this is what I found. This is all the evidence. And I hope the conservatives won't, say, won't take this and say, oh, well, I mean, we've been right all along. Or, I mean, we don't have a social justice agenda. It doesn't work because this, everything they're saying is false. So he's hoping that, he, that what he's doing is not giving fuel to a political side of a historical debate. Well, if that's the history, if this is right, okay, if this is true, then, and, and you found the, all the evidence supports this one direction, even if, you're, even if your political leanings, your ideology doesn't go with it, well, then, then you, you're obligated to talk about that. 
if that's where it goes, right? If that's the direction it goes in. That's what you should be doing. And I would give Thornton credit for this uh, because he's at least admitting, well, I'm not, I'm not real comfortable with this. You know what else? There's lots of books like this. I mean, you can go the the Cynthia Nicoletti book that she wrote on secession. She apologizes because essentially she has to agree with those who were defending Jefferson Davis that secession wasn't treason. She has to agree with it, but in the conclusion, she pleads based on Texas v. White that all these people were wrong. He says, this is what happens. They have to find something to justify their leftist credentials to get a job. It's, it's ridiculous because the evidence doesn't go in their direction. It, so they have to try to figure this out. Uh, Fogel and Engerman, when they wrote Time on the Cross, they were just following the evidence. And of course, they were blasted for this by the left. This goes back into the 1970s. Oh, this stuff isn't new. This is what the left does. They essentially guilt you into not agreeing with what the evidence shows based on some type of idea of modern society and what modern society should be or the ideology behind it. So Walsh is saying, it doesn't matter if it's wrong. It doesn't matter. It has the right social justice tone to it. Essentially, that's what he's saying. You can write anything you want. It can be entirely wrong. This is what Sweet points out. Wait a second. You're going to show this movie on the early uh, African slave ventures in Dahomey, which was a horrible place, but yet you're going to show it all wrong. You're going to, you're going to flip what it really was. That's not history. That's activism. It doesn't matter if it's wrong, though. What o only thing that matters is it has the right position, you see. In Walsh's hyper-politicized worldview, Historic accuracy is wholly subordinate to the political objectives of the project. Sweet sin in telling the truth about the 1619 project's defects were being, quote, willfully blind to the predictable political consequences of his public interventions. You see, it's going to have the wrong political outcome. You can't speak the truth because the truth will not set you free. The truth will ruin our political ideology because people will say, ah, oh, that's garbage. The 1619 Project, then, is garbage. I don't want to follow that. It's it's all biased nonsense. This is what it's going to do. Any argument that does not advance a narrow band of far-left political activism is not only unfit for sharing, it must be suppressed. Exactly right. You see, this is the whole point of going after now, traditional histories of, say, the 1850s, the 1860s. Even in the Reconstruction period, going after this, because they're... Look... The problem is that if that dissident voice is out there, people might believe it. And they may not believe what we're saying. They may not believe what we're trying to sell the American public. So we have to suppress it all. And this is what people in the profession do. They don't hire people that don't think like them because we can't actually have a robust debate. It can't happen because if it happens, you know what? We might lose. And if we lose, then all our politics are doomed. You see, a lot of historians get involved in history because they're political activists, and they fit the history. They think this makes this justifies everything they believe. It becomes their religion. And because it justifies everything they believe, well, then they have to do it, and they have to get acolytes, and they have to get people to think like them, etc., etc. Within hours of the AHA's original tweet of Sweet's article, the cancellation campaign was in full swing. Predictably, the AHA caved to the, to the cancelers. One day after the offending article went live, the AHA tweeted out, a public apology from Sweet. 
It reads like a forced confession statement, acknowledging the harm and damage allegedly caused by simply raising questions about the politicization of scholarship toward overtly ideological activist ends. It did not matter that Sweet's criticisms were mild and couched in plenty of new, of new, uh, uh, nuance, excuse me, or that they came from a center-left perspective that also criticized conservative historians for politicizing the debate about gun rights. Sweet was guilty of pointing out that partisan political activism undermines scholarly rigor when the lines between the two blur because the overwhelming majority of that activism inside the history profession currently comes from the political left. And for that, the very same activists extracted an, an apology letter. Its text, reproduced below, reads like a struggle session for academic wrongthink. And so let me read this. And this is where I think Magnus is very good at this. Message from James Sweet. My September Perspectives on History column has generated anger and dismay among many of our colleagues and members. I take full responsibility that it did not convey what I intended in for the harm that it has caused. I had hoped to open a conversation on how we do history in our current political, politically charged environment. Instead, I foreclosed the, this conversation for many members, causing harm to colleagues, the discipline, and the association. In fact, he didn't do any of that. It was a breath of fresh air a real eye-opening experience that somebody was actually speaking the truth for once about what's going on in their profession. It was great. And if you read the comments, I don't. I went and looked at the article, had a few comments. Most of the comments were positive about it. Hey, thanks for writing this because what, what we're going through stinks. These totalitarians, these totalitarian historians are monsters and they need to be done away with. A president's monthly column, one of the privileges of the elected office, provides a megaphone to the membership and the discipline. The views and opinions expressed in that column are not those of the association. If my ham-fisted attempt at provocation has proven anything, it is that the AHA membership is as vocal and robust as ever. Now, vocal, I would say. Robust, probably not. If anyone has criti uh, criticisms that they have been reluctant or unable to post publicly, please feel free to contact me directly. Uh, I sincerely regret the way I've alienated some of my black colleagues and friends. I am deeply sorry in my clumsy efforts to draw attention to methodological flaws and teleological presentism. I left the impression that questions posed from absence, grief, memory, and resilience somehow matter less than those posed from positions of power. This absolutely is not true. It wasn't my intention to leave my, that impression, but my provocation completely missed the mark. Once again, I apologize for the damage I have caused to my fellow historians, the discipline, and the AHA. I hope to redeem myself in future conversations with you all. I'm listening and learning. What a stupid response. I mean, it is the most awful thing I've ever read. And it was done to placate the activist side of the profession, the leftist. So as uh, Magnus says, Sweet's apology excited the activist wing of the profession, though it did little to placate their ire. The resignation demands continued because Sweet's apology was insincere and because his argument would be used by the wrong people, i.e. anyone who dissents from a particular brand of progressive activist orthodoxy. Simply criticizing the 1619 Project would play into the tactics of right-wingers, Nazis, and other bad-faith actors who would, call, who would use uh, Sweet's commentary in the service of white supremacism and misogyny, announced Kevin Gannon, a historian who's primarily known for scolding other scholars on Twitter when they deviate from the profession's far-left orthodoxies. Now, it's funny that Kevin Gannon is brought up here uh, because um, 
Kevin Gannon, when I when I wrote years ago a piece, Robert E. Lee versus Twitter historians, I didn't cite Kevin Gannon by name in that piece, but that's who I was talking about. And he immediately blocked me on Twitter. Not even not even a response, right? So this was uh, this is Kevin Gannon's. I mean, th- this is embarrassing what he's saying here. Embarrassing, absolutely laughably embarrassing. It's not going to be used by that. Uh, it's just simply, you know, it's true, right? What what Sweet was saying was true, and Gannon doesn't like it because he's a political activist. That's what Kevin Gannon has become. In this branch of academia, it does not matter whether the 1619 Project was truthful or, fact- or factually accurate. The only concerns are whether its narrative can be weaponized for a political cause or used to deflect scrutiny of the same. As is often the case in the pseudo-moralizing political crusades for academia, the loudest demands against Sweet also came from the least productive academics. Historians with thin CVs and little in the way of original scholar research to their names, although they do maintain 24-7 Twitter feeds of progressive political commentary. And that's, that's a beautiful statement because that's true. Laura Burnett, one of the more vocal cancellation crusaders after the initial article posted, scoffed at Tweet, announcing this apology was basically, sorry I made you sad, but I'm still right. She continued, lamenting inartful expression is apparently easier than admitting through flawed argument, unsupported claims, and factually incorrect assertions. But of course, none of these people can say that, can show where they're not doing that, right? None of them. None of them. None of them can show where they're not political activists, and that's what their history reflects. Note that Burnett and other the other detractors never bothered to explain how Sweet's argument was flawed or unsupported. Again, this, this is the this is what Magnus just said. Nor did they attempt to pen a rebuttal, which could have produced a constructive dialogue about the role of political activism in shaping historical scholarship. It was sufficient to denounce him as guilty for holding the wrong opinions. No matter the apology that Sweet made, the campaign to eject him from the history profession's markedly impolite company would continue. Meanwhile, the rest of the world began to take notice of the bizarre spectacle playing out at the main professional organization for a major academic discipline. As criticisms mounted on the AHA's Twitter feed, the organization moved to shut down debate entirely. They locked the Twitter account and posted a message to members denouncing the public blowback as the product of trolls and bad faith actors. Quote, A conversation about history has been invaded by trolls uninterested in civil discourse in the last 12 hours. This is appalling. Therefore, conversation is temporarily limited to our community. AHA condemns all harassment of members of our community and others who replied in good faith. Keep in mind that only 24 hours earlier, 24 hours earlier, the AHA had no problem with hundreds of activist historians flooding their threads with actual harassing behavior by bad faith actors. It tolerated cancellation threats directed against its president, calls to flood the personal email accounts of its board with harassing messages and denunciations of Sweet, and dozens of profane, sexist, and personally degrading attacks on Sweet himself. There were no AHA denunciations of these trolls or their appalling behavior and no statements calling for civil discourse while the activist Twitter historian mob flooded the original thread with obscenity-laced vitriol and ad hominem attacks on Sweet. Of course not, because the mob is the AHA, right? That's the mob. And these people simply use Twitter as as a bullhorn for their stupidity. Sadly, this type of unprofessional belligerence is now the norm on history Twitter. It would never be tolerated from any other perspective than the far left, but it's valorized in the profession as long as it serves that particular set of ideological objectives. Now, I mean, this is, look, you criticize any of these main lefty historians on Twitter, and you will get their sycophants. They will come at you in ways 
that you won't ever believe, right? Just go and just have the audacity to say these people really don't know what they're talking about here, or point out where well, they've said this and this is they've said this one here and then this. They just can't deal with this stuff. The final irony is that the AHA only shuttered its Twitter feed from the public when it could no longer restrict the conversation to the activist mob calling for Sweet's cancellation. It's the same brand of intellectual closure that Sweet's offending column warned against in its final passage. Quote, When we foreshorten our, or shape history to justify rather than inform contemporary political positions, we not only undermine the discipline but threaten its very integrity. End quote. So this is a really good piece. I enjoyed it. Um, it was fun to read. And it's great that Magnus put this out there. And just to kind of follow up, this was a long, you know, two-day discussion of this. But it was necessary just to give you, you know, pull back the veil, so to speak, of what goes on in the historical profession. It's awful. It's awful. So I'll see you tomorrow on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. <laughs>